0: views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity.
1: Hello and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Mike Matthews, Senior Vice President of Data Gumbo. If you follow technology advancements, you may have heard of Data Gumbo. They are leading the way in smart contracts, which can cover many different parts of the energy supply chain. We are going to be discussing the wild world of carbon credits, and we're going to make the case for why smart contracts are the key to unlocking this nascent market. So. Thank you, Mike, for joining me on the show today. Please, if you would, share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Data Gumbo.
2: Joe, thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure to, to be with you today and uh, looking forward to our, our discussion. Um Yeah, I'll start with uh, my background really quick. So engineer by training, spent about 20 years in the industry, actually on the construction side, building large, complex uh, assets. And most of my career, though, was spent in the systems and trying to fix the data problems and integrating systems between different companies and also inside companies. Uh, And that really led me into getting into the technology sides of things, particularly around enterprise data models and uh, enterprise software implementations. And so my career really shifted into that getting into the consulting side, but also into software implementations. And, um, through that, I met, uh, Andrew Bruce, the founder of data gumbo about three or four years ago and just was enamored by the technology. And so uh, always being out there to drive digital transformation, I saw the opportunities that uh, this technology presented to really transform industry. And so I joined up with Data Gumbo a couple, three years ago and have worn a variety of hats with them. Um, <clears throat> Data Gumbo, as you, as you implied, is a, is a startup based in Houston, startup uh Let's see, about five, six years ago, in two thousand, very end of two thousand sixteen. Initially, as a um, IoT platform, uh, Andrew was working to try to automate uh, uh, land rig uh, drilling operations, and how could I pull in disparate data to to make that happen? Um, and then I would say in two thousand eighteen or so. Um, he came upon a problem and that problem was to, you know, really try to fix the trust issue that exists in B2B transactions. And so data gumbo today pivoted to what we are now, which is really a, a B2B network uh, that connects companies through smart contracts. And as you talked about, you know, uh, captures those transactions in blockchain to address that trust issue.
1: Thank you for the introduction. Now, before we go any further, I have to ask, where does the name Data Gumbo come from?
2: <laughs> I love that, love that question because you hear Data Gumbo, you, you, know, you may like it or you may not, but you're certainly not going to forget it. Um, so we're really, um, I'd like to say, there's a, a bunch of uh, you know Cajun folks working in the company. There are a couple, um, but that's not the, the origin really. The origin is from that, that IoT platform. And pulling disparate data from different companies, different systems with different you know uh, the way it's architected and how the data comes in, and making something good out of it. and that's Data Gumbo. Hmm.
1: It's always fun to have these exciting, relevant names that sound sound fun, but there's a very clear, clear origin story behind them and I think anybody, as you point out, those that are, that are Cajun, that are working in our industry, that have, anybody who has had gumbo realizes that it is what seems to be a lot of different pieces, but it's always so delicious in the end. Absolutely. And that's really what we want for our data is to be that nice, sweet, delicious, filling, satiating food that, that helps us continue on. So Data Gumbo is built on, on now supplying companies with a way to keep track of their business to find that trust layer in B2B transactions. And one aspect that you're doing here are the, the smart contracts executed on the blockchain. I guess, can we talk a little bit more? Why do you see this as a need for the energy industry. Where did, where was that first sight of seeing this being what we, I guess, what we need?
2: Right. It, yeah. So it is, uh, I guess it would be, you know, data Gumba's origin story where we really pivoted from just that IOT platform. And this is a, a real case where it's not blockchain looking for a problem. Uh, Andrew recognized a problem and, figured out or connected the dots that, Hey, blockchain may actually solve this problem. So I'll, I'll, I'll give that in terms of, uh, of an, ex- not, uh, that what really happened. And so he was in a meeting and he'd been, you know, you know, Struggling to not struggling, but really working to get this IoT platform out in the market, and so obviously he's meeting with operators and the service companies. And he was at a uh, International Association of Drilling Contractors uh, meeting and was meeting with one of the large global operators. And they described to him a, a real problem they were having, and that is they were you know drilling all over the world, both onshore and off, and do anywhere you know somewhere between you know, 2.3 and two and a half million drill pipe connections a year. And if you're familiar with that, it's, you know, you connect a piece of pipe to the prior piece of pipe, it spins and, and drills down and then you connect another piece of pipe. And it was taking them on average across all their operations. They averaged about six minutes per drill pipe connection. And they were like, you know, If we could just get this down to five minutes of connection, it's worth about $250 million to us, both in terms of saved costs, but increased revenue, efficiencies, and so forth. But we can't get a single contractor to agree to, you know, to to work with us to do that. And that's where the light bulb for Andrew went off because he was already focused on that IoT platform, he knew, you know, the five, six points of data that he could get from that drilling platform that could exactly calculate and determine the, you know, the drill pipe connection time. And he'd been reading about, you know, blockchain and smart contracts, and he put the three together. And he said, you know, what if, you know, I were to – I know the exact five points of data to uh, to capture that, um, that drill pipe connection time. And if I use a smart contract actually to, you know, make that – incentive calculation and then uh store all of that information in an immutable block on a blockchain that is then a distributed ledger shared equally between the service provider and the operator do you think that would work and they came back after kind of you know making fun of blockchain and they were like i think that may actually work and so it's that that example because when he talked to the contractor side they were like well we don't really trust the operator. Of course, we could do it in five minutes, but we think, you know, based on our experience, more than likely, they're going to use that incentive payment for the drill crime connection times to drive down our day rates and then find some reason not to pay us the incentive. We just basically don't trust them. And so... That lack of trust between the two parties was the, the the business problem that Andrew recognized and brought the technology to bear. So we then pivoted to that and already had the IT platform in place. Looked at some off the shelf, readily available, you know, blockchain technologies out there, and they made the determination at the time that we needed to develop our own, and that for to apply in industrial settings where most of the blockchain up to that point was around, you know, fintech and and uh, cryptocurrency and things like that. We needed to be able to store very large amounts of data, let's say on chain, you know, inside the block. And that at the time was what was behind developing our own. So that's what the data gumbo technology is. It's an IoT platform that's out looking for not big data, but specific data that is used by a smart contract to effectively identify and verify events in the field and then apply either, you know, commercial terms or greenhouse gas emission calculations or some type of, you know, uh, action against that data, and then take all of that information and store it in a, an immutable blockchain that is private, is permissioned, and it's there to be the single source of truth that the parties can rely on.
1: That's a great example. And I think it is understandable for, for many people as we're talking about the ability to just increase that speed just by a little bit there. But across an entire company having two and a half million connections, if you can cut down that one minute per connection, you've just now saved two and a half million minutes yes. out of total work time. Do you have any other examples of where you have applied this technology and and been able to record and and make note of those? Those um, improvements.
2: Yes, um, and one's more more recent than that one, and, and in fact, it's in the process of being uh, being rolled out. It's another oil and gas example, but as you'll see in these you know these transactions I talk about, they really can you know they're endemic to all, to all industries. But this specific example, if you're familiar with you know let's say land based operations in the oil and gas. Uh, business in, in, in the production side, you know, operators will have hundreds or thousands of wells spread out over you know a wide geography across the different different basins, and as those wells are operating, they use a variety of different chemicals and substances to maintain the integrity and health of that well, and to enhance the recovery of the of the of the product of the oil and gas uh, that they're trying to access. And you can imagine across thousands of sites, there's these little tanks or little, you know, holding tanks for these chemicals that then a pump is injecting into a well, you know, under some, you know, prescribed program. Well, those tanks all need to be serviced. They, you know, they, they fill them up and then the, the chemicals are used, the levels drop and they need to be refilled. And there's literally thousands of these tanks out there. And it is a real challenge to most operators in the service companies to actually perform that function in an efficient way, uh, both in terms of accuracy of being able to um, accurately record what chemical was delivered to what particular asset so that it could be, the cost could be attributed to the, uh, you know, the appropriate, let's say cost center. Um, and then on the, you know, the service company side, just keeping track of all those transactions and deliveries, and then being able to roll that up and incorporate it correctly into an invoice that they could then send to the operator and get paid. Well, it turns out that's a, a very inefficient process with a lot of manual intervention and with literally you know, thousands of these out there, they, they could, you know, a single operator could have, get 10, 15,000 invoices a year just for chemicals, for production chemicals. And that requires a lot of touches. They've got to review those. They have, if there's a problem or something doesn't match, they've got to go touch it again. And they did the, the time motion study on that and found, you know, on average, it's about two touches per, two hours per touch. Um, if there's a problem and they have to, you know, reconcile or research something or go find, you know, solve a problem, it doubles that time up to four hours of touch. So what they asked Data Gumbo to do was to take that same idea of the smart contract and point to really uh, three sources of, of data, one would be to get you know, uh, what they call the truck ticket, the delivery ticket of the chemical to the site from the chemical provider. So ingest those truck tickets um, into that uh, IoT platform digitally. And then they would have you know, essentially uh, some sort of a tank level gauge on the on the tanks to measure the level of the, uh, the chemical in the tanks. And from that, you could identify what we call a flow event. You see the tank level gets down to a certain level, it comes up, it gets refilled, and you see the level, you know, raised back up to, let's say, 90% or whatever the capacity is. And then the third piece of data was, there is oftentimes a pump with a, a flow meter on the pump that is actually measuring the chemical going down into the well. And so those three points of data can be collected by a smart contract and say, okay, it's this type of chemical you base that off of the truck ticket there's the volume Um, you can then tie that to the commercial aspect of you know this particular chemical is so much so much a gallon and this many gallons were uh, consumed over the last week or whatever that time period is and then perform the commercial calculation and then store all of that information in a block on the blockchain for the two parties to see And so in that context, what they really wanted to be able to do was to get to what the operator called a touchless transaction. So from the point of, hey, the call goes out to the chemical company to bring the chemicals out, to the actual delivery, to the collection of the tickets, to the preparation of an invoice, the submittal of that, the approval of that, and the payment – where they were literally spending you know thousands of hours a year and manual touches on both sides of the transaction, uh, they wanted to get that to be automated. If the timestamp of the truck ticket matched within a certain range, the timestamps of the flow event and the volumes matched within a certain range, then that was an approved transaction. So that that verification or the th- three or two-way match is occurring at the at the time of the event. So you're matching the event, the timestamps, the volumes, the material, whatever it might be. And once that's done and you have all the data to prove it, boom, that's a valid transaction and the supplier should be paid for that. And so we're able to do that, accumulate those transactions and then immediately, uh, you know, uh, submit that invoice. But it's already approved for payment. So it goes straight to the ACH or the payment queue uh, based on whatever the negotiated payment terms are. So that particular example saved uh, considerable. I think I think the calculation was around just on that one contract for the operator was close to like twelve thousand hours a year, of just touch time, um, with similar savings on the, uh, the chemical provider side. Um, there was also improved, you know, obviously improved accuracy, and um, they're in the process of now rolling that smart contract out. I think to over four thousand wells. And it brought benefit to both companies.
1: Wow. Yeah. So these production improvements are are very clear. You can see that problem. You implement the solution through that recorded history. You start to quantify those operations improvements. And I think it's very clear where that value add is. And you can see that start to materialize and compound for, as you point out, for for both companies in these contracts. Absolutely. I think the the value here and what we want to start shifting to and talking about now is that if you have these veri- verifiable material improvements, now you can also start adding on those other metrics and seeing where you may have a verifiable reduction in CO2 or other greenhouse gas emissions, which leads to the, the topic of the day here, carbon credits. Now, before we jump into the carbon credit market itself, I want to establish a few key points, first being a simple definition of a carbon credit.
2: Yeah, and you know I'm not an expert in this, but I'll I'll give the uh, the layman's definition of the 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 carbon credit. Effectively, it is uh, what they call CO two e or the CO two equivalent, because there's various uh, greenhouse gases, a variety of greenhouse gases, that um, are you know, have an impact on the, on our climate and they normalize all of those back to a ton of CO2. And so, you know, methane may, I forget what it is. It may be, you know, 50, 60 times more, uh, warming or impact than a ton of CO2. And so they, they it on an equivalent basis. So, you know, the carbon credit is essentially the, um, for lack of a better term, the I guess the, the, the monetization of those tons of carbon. So when you hear companies talk about you know, these carbon credits, effectively what they're doing is that um, a credit is associated with a verifiable, uh, permanent, um, additional, what they call additionality, uh, ton of CO2 equivalent that is – being removed or not allowed to to enter the atmosphere and have that impact on the environment and so they're initially called offsets as they're getting verified and certified that yes based on science that carbon has actually been avoided or removed and then as it becomes uh, let's say it's associated with, a, let's say, legal title and the ability to actually trade that for you know, monetary offset, uh, then they become carbon credits. At least that's how we're, you know, at least the projects we're involved with, that's the distinction we make between an offset and a credit.
1: Okay. So there's actually a difference between being able to say we are offsetting X number of tons versus... Taking that offset and now trying to monetize it, now you're turning it into a credit and trying to sell it on the market. Is that? Did I hear you correctly?
2: Yeah, that that's our distinction, at least in the with the they call them uh, developers uh, that are developing these carbon reduction projects. And they go through r- really a couple of, uh, of steps. There's the, the the certification. So there's these certifying bodies, Vera, the gold standard, or, or two of the probably most well-known that come into the developer and evaluate their methodology and ensure that it's science-based and then has to meet certain criteria like additionality, right? It has to be something that um, was not of port- is additional to normal business operations. It's something different that you're doing. Um, it has to be permanent, right? And so there's there's different criteria that these verifying bodies have, and they go in and make sure or ensure that that developer is meeting those requirements. And if they do, um, part of that is the quantification of those those uh, the CO two equivalents that's being captured or removed and um, then they will go ahead and certify and say okay your methodology or whatever if you've planted so many trees or you're sequestering coal or you're plugging abandoned wells or you you've got a you know um, a forest of you know undersea forest of seaweed that is you know removing this much co2 those things get verified and they essentially have a registry where Each of those credits that they quantify gets registered on. And then there's the formation of effectively, in that context, it's really an offset in the way we're looking at it. And then when they go through the legal process of actually creating legal title to those offsets and the ability to monetize or trade them, sell them, um, in our view that we say that's where it becomes a carbon credit because then it can be traded.
1: Okay. Okay. So one big question that I have and offsets versus credits, all of this stuff makes sense to me, but why now for this big push on having a carbon credit market, why is it, I guess in one sense, why are we not all just creating our own offsets?
2: Yeah, that's a a great question, and it's uh, you know sort of the entry into the, this discussion. It is still kind of the wild west, and so the the allegory that I make, or at least my meta model and how I think about this, is that you know if you if you look at our current, let's say, financial accounting standards, and particularly for you know publicly traded companies. Um, it's taken, you know, literally 100 years or more, whatever, to to evolve to where we are today, both with the you know the systems that we have, the independent audits, the standards that companies follow, and what we're seeing the push on is the recognition, and this is coming again, you know, from from the new from the UN, now from Security Exchange Commission, from the EU, different regulatory bodies, are recognizing the need, you know, on a broader scale, getting to, you know, the the world to net zero and it's a finite system, right? And so if we continue to pump the CO2 equivalents into the atmosphere, we're going to continue to warm. And at some point it's going to pass a, um, you know, a tipping point. And so there's a lot of downside economic risk to that. And so whether or not you, you know, believe in that or, or not, there's certainly a lot of, I want to say, interest or pressure from investors and uh, from the community at large to say we've got to begin to do something so there's that external pressure and i think what we're seeing is that it's really coming primarily from the investment community pushing you know emitting companies to begin to get a handle on it and What you see out there is that there's this, at the starting point of this energy transition, how do I decarbonize my operations? Well, that's a big task, and it's complex. And if you start extending that into your full value chain, the supply chain, um, how do you do that? And so – I think where we're seeing the, the carbon credits come in, companies are struggling to do this, and now you need to get some standardization around that. How do you quantify this? How do you verify that th- you know this particular credit that I'm thinking of procuring is valid? It's real. It's 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 I can believe the certification, and then how do I account for that? And I'll go back to the example of the the accounting. I think we're going to see carbon accounting evolve and become as let's say regimented and particularly, you know, regulated as the financial accounting is done. And so I think a lot of the same type standards, and you see that with, um, with you know, IFRS, which really governs the uh, accounting standards that for publicly plated tr- companies worldwide, um, they've come up with ISSB, which is the International Sustainability Standards Board, uh, they're just going to be, you know, coming out with standards for companies to follow. So I think there's, you know, there's the broader pressure of the, you know, the, what's happening in the environment and investment coming in. But then when companies get down and start making these, you know, claims for, okay, we'll be net zero by, you know, 2050, 2045, or whatever you know, that particular date is. They have to be able to actually have a real target. They have to know what their current baseline is. What is your carbon footprint today? Not just for your operations, but for all the energy that you that you procure. And what about your full supply chain and getting your product to market? And how much carbon does the use of your product actually generate as well? And those are called, that's, you know, greenhouse gas Uh, protocol for scope one, two, and three emissions. And so you've got to start accounting for that. How do you do that where it's believable and you're not doing what you're seeing out in the market or a lot of the pressure and even some lawsuits come now coming forth around what they call greenwashing. So you just can't, in the future, you're just not going to be able to throw out numbers. Hey, we want to be you know net zero by 2045, and here's our plan. Here's our current carbon footprint, and last year we reduced it by you know however many thousands of tons. And next year, these programs are going to further reduce it, but they're always going to have a gap. They can't get to net zero until you know a certain point in time. So they need what they call carbon credits to bridge that gap to, to net zero.
1: Yeah. I think that's I think that's clear understanding how and why these larger corporations and large companies now need to be buying carbon credits because of that need to get to net zero and and I I think you've done a great job explaining the complexity of even understanding where a company is as far as the as far as where they are in terms of their carbon emissions and how they are getting closer to net zero, and then how many carbon credits they need to buy. One thing that that I'd like to go to now is, what kind of carbon credits are there out there? My my first thought is is CCS, carbon capture and storage. I know you can also buy things like planting trees. But what about earlier, we were talking about improved operations. Is there a way to somehow offset offset carbon and count that as a credit because you are operating in a more efficient manner or or you start running some of your operations using solar or wind where where do all of those kind of fall into this picture
2: yeah, they, yeah. They, again, a good question. And, and the, the the concept that you're really touching on there is what the the verifying company or verifying organizations call additionality. And so, if your reductions are just part of your you know, your normal efficiency improvement operations, um, that's not additional. If you are making, you know wholesale changes to source your electricity you know deliberately just from you know renewable sources and it's going to take you you know three years to do that or whatever um i'm not in the verification business but you would have a verifying organization like vera come in and look at that program and if you are you know they say yes you're meeting the additionality requirements amongst the other things that they evaluate then those could be you know uh, if they meet their criteria, those could be classified as credits. So it, it can be, so we're working with one developer that is uh, essentially taking the technology that's in cars today, in common use in, in automobiles, You know, where you pull up to a light or a stop sign and your car's idling and it actually shuts off, right? So you're not consuming gasoline, you're not emitting You know, CO2, or greenhouse gases uh, for whatever that period of time that it shut off. They're taking that and applying it to the big engines that let's say drive uh, fracking operations as an example. And standard operating models for those those uh, those big engines on, let's say frack jobs is about 30% of the time uh, that they're in use is they're sitting in idle. And uh, it's, it's too challenging with the, you know, the current motor control technology when they go to idle to turn it off and then to start it back up and get to the, you know, the power they need uh, for fracking when they need it. And so they've, this company's taken this technology and they have developed it for an industrial application to apply that at idle, shut off. And then immediately be able to, to, to restart it uh, when it's needed. Um, they're able to baseline. Here's your normal operations. Here's the gas, you know, the diesel consumption. Here's the emissions associated with that. And now you apply our technology, and you see a thirty percent drop in the um, in the consumption of fuel, as well as a thirty percent drop in the you know the emissions that were were created. In that case, they're in the process of being certified. In that context. That can be considered additionality or additional, so they can get those credits, those those uh, reductions certified as offsets, and then you know can choose to monetize that in some way, or perhaps you know make them available as part of their you know let's say the lease agreement for their um, for their equipment as an additional value to you know to their customers. Is that is that a good example?
1: Yeah, that's a, yeah. a really helpful example and, and very cool to think about how you can, how that is a, this additionality and a way to not only improving your operations and saving money, but now producing what can be a, an additional revenue right. stream.
2: Yep. And so there, if you begin to think about it that way, so there's a couple of, so in that one, I would classify that as an avoidance, right? You're avoiding putting those additional, uh, you know, tons of CO2 into into the atmosphere. Then and I think what's going to shake out eventually, you know, that that source, that type of verification is going to have probably different values in, in an open market. If it is, let's say, um, you know, carbon capture and sequestration, whether that's from we're working with another developer that's, that's doing that off of, you know, let's say uh, – process streams in a process plant whether it's an lng facility or a refinery or a petrochemical plant actually pulling the the greenhouse gas emissions out of those process streams measuring it compressing it moving it through a pipeline and then injecting it into you know underground reservoirs that they have that are depleted Um, so you're directly removing that from from what would have been in the atmosphere and then there's the direct air capture technology that is actually pulling, you know, CO2 and other greenhouse gases directly out of the atmosphere itself. And so those are direct removals and we'll pro- I would guess we'll probably have, you know, more value in the market if they're, you know, scientifically verifiable and, you know, auditable and things like that. The ones that are, let's say a- avoidance, like the, you know, the, uh, motor control that I just mentioned. We've got two other projects we're working on in the development side where they're um, actually working with uh, a coal mining company and essentially sequestering an entire uh, coal seam, coal field, and um, getting, doing the engineering analysis on that, understanding the amount of CO2 contained in all of that coal or CO2 equivalent, the greenhouse gas contained within that coal, and then effectively putting it under a 99-year deed restriction, which meets the you know the permanence required, to not develop that coal. So it, it meets the additionality requirement in that that coal would normally be produced and sold into the market, uh, but they're making the decision to not develop that coal and to place it under, under deed restriction. And so they're applying to get all of that, you know, see greenhouse gas emissions associated with that uh, coal seam uh, certified, and then with all of those offsets, establishing legal title to those, and then you know entering that into some sort of a you know a marketplace. So I think you're going to see that where you have kind of the avoidance or the sequestration kinds of things, plugging abandoned wells and oil and gas is similar to that, versus you know removal from the atmosphere. And, you know, you brought up the, you know, the tr- tr- trees is a r- really popular one, but, you know, trees, is it is that permanent reduction Or what if there's a fire and all of that carbon gets released? Or as the trees die and decompose, again, they're releasing. Um, so there's, uh, you know, at least I'm reading there's some discussion around, you know, how effective are trees, how permanent are trees as, as a potential offset. So I think, that's all going to kind of shake out, and we're going to see some distinction, you know, maybe in different you know levels of you know types of credits as as this wild west begins to mature over the next decade or so.
1: Yeah, what I'm hearing you say is that there is a lot of complexity with the different types of credits, the different types of sequestering avenues, and and it sounds like to me there is. Massive opportunity for simple error, but also potentially fraudulent transactions. Is that a fair statement to make?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you've got, you know, w- what those verifying bodies are looking for. There has to be a scientific basis, and you, know, you I think you'll also see um, a distinction in value, in, in, particularly on the on the credit side based on that method of quantification, right? So direct measurement of emissions at the source, you know, is is probably the most accurate, right? Hmm. And so if you got the technology, let's say for, you know, continuous monitoring of fugitive emissions, um, th- those systems actually can see, you know, they can see the plume using these, this optic technology They can quantify that. Um, and that can be recognized as a valid measurement, right? And so you're able to quantify it versus, you know, initially as companies, you know, over the last two or three years are putting together their carbon footprint, um, estimates included in their sustainability reports, they're really models, right? They don't have a lot of direct measurement. Um, And and so they're doing their best to estimate what they think their, their emissions footprint might be Um, kind of between those two, that sort of top down or more broad based modeling is things that are tied to, let's say uh, emission sources and let's say the energy consumption required to, you know, power that source. So if you have a pump running in a facility and you're able to measure the, you know, uh, the kilowatt hours consumed by that pump every day, and you know that the, you know, um, the electricity generation associated with that is a you know, combined cycle gas plant or whatever, you're able to apply the appropriate emission factor and calculate the associated emissions with the electricity consumption of that pump. Um, similarly, if you have let's say a heater that is consuming you know burning gas to heat up a product to move it through a pipe or whatever, uh, you're able to measure the consumption of the of the gas that's getting burned. And then from that, that fuel source volumes, you're able to calculate the, the associated emissions. So that's, You know, they're they're still measured, but it's more of an indirect measurement of the input versus a direct measurement of the output. And that's kind of between the, you know, the top-down or estimated model versus the direct, you know, emission measurement. And then there's the, you know, sort of the source measurement method. That's what we're seeing. And in our technology – we're able to distinguish the smart contract can distinguish between those and point to you know this source it's a direct measurement of the emission this source over here no we're measuring the electricity input and calculating the emissions and this source over here wow we're, we're, not, we're not sure we don't have good measurement of that so we're just you know we're modeling it And a smart contract is good at that because they're different data sources and you can, based on the data source or the asset type or whatever, you say, okay, apply this method to that particular source and then make the calculations that way.
1: And that's really interesting from the standpoint of that error, those error bars, they can be built in into the smart contract and with the data source so that the the lack of transparency or the or the trustworthiness of those emissions reductions and of the of the driving towards net zero for a, a company those those are now all data driven and are clear in the in the blockchain and in the ledger so that everybody can see exactly how they're being calculated and exactly where where those numbers are coming from
2: exactly and, and even to the point of extending that to let's say the measurement device and methodology so what's the engineering behind that when's the last time that device was calibrated um, you know what's the testing of it to make sure that it's still accurate you know all of those things can be incorporated for a smart contract to say okay once a month we're looking for you know a, you know a calibration certificate as an example and boom that gets loaded up and it's stored in the blockchain so if an auditor independent third party comes in they can see all the measurements and the appropriate calculations just like you said but they could also see you know independent verification or certifications of measurement devices or methodologies or whatever is required to establish the source of truth
1: this stuff it it's very exciting to hear how I guess how recordable or how traceable all of these aspects are to what to what sounds like a very difficult problem that being understanding your carbon emissions and and ultimately being able to calculate and create a an accounting and and tracking to say we've actually offset more carbon than we're producing and it it's just cool to think about. And this is really what what y'all are doing at Data Gumbo. You've essentially already created this accounting and tracking system and are now finding ways to apply it to this new nascent market of of carbon credits. One thing that I'm wondering, though, is that, that y'all are your one company working with a handful of companies, and we're really talking about really the whole world or very large corporations getting to net zero. And so I just think that this, and and when I've talked to people about how much carbon we're emitting on the, on the gigaton scale, mm-hmm. this seems like a, a very large market that needs to be built. How are we going to do that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you, and this is what we, I don't want to say struggle with, but it's, um, it's a talent. Cause if you do, if you step back and like just within a, even a medium sized company and you start to look across all of your operations and your supply chain, it's, it's just such a big elephant. Where do you start? And it's almost like, you know, I guess the, you know, the marathon analogy, it's like, it's with the first step and it's incremental, right? And, and the the best thing to do is to get started. Um, And it may take five years, it may take 10 years, but you know, little by little, and that's the kind of the, the, one of the inherent things about the smart contract approach and the specific data approach, it can be as incremental as as you need it to be, right? It can go as fast or as slow. It can, it can take time. So, you know, I, you know, you see companies, let, let's say, you know, like the utility sector, power generation, um, and energy distribution, you know, I think they account different things I've read anywhere from 30 to 40% of our, you know, the carbon footprint. And they're working to accelerate, right? And they want to get, get to those sources, get, to, get into their supply chains. And so it's really that network effect. So I think at least you know, us being a networking company trying to network companies together through smart contracts, we're going to see that happen. And maybe it will follow, you know, other tech, you know, paths of other technologies as they've, you know, you're just sort of flat, flat, flat. And then all of a sudden you hit this, you know, this hockey stick um, Mm -hmm. period of growth where it just explodes. People have figured it out, right? And now you're every day somebody is, you know, identifying another source and getting it measured and get it in and in, into the network. So I think, you know, quick answer is that I, that network effect is going to, you know, hit that point of real traction. And I think you'll, 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 you'll see the measurement and us as a global community really begin to get a true handle on where are all of these things, all of these emission sources, and then that's really going to accelerate the energy transition, right? As we, you know, doggedly work at, you know, transitioning from, you know, carbon intensive, emitting intensive uh, sources of, of power, really, and and getting to things that, that are either extracting it out or severely reducing it. So it's, I think the wrong thing, and I read, you know, CEOs talking about, well, it's just, you know, it's too difficult, there's too much, it's too complex. Identifying the single source and measuring that and figuring out ways to reduce it, that single problem is not that challenging. Um, So let's just take it one at a time, prioritize, and incrementally over time, we're going to get you know, this measurement down and we're going to see that. And then we're going to see the trends of the reductions beginning to take hold and the alternative sources of energy begin to take hold. And, um, you know, at some point get to that, you know, that, ultimate goal of net zero. Now, whether that's 2040 or 2050 um, you've looked at the same charts I probably have. And, and, you know, (laughs) we keep pushing out and that wave get, you know, we call it a a bow wave uh, is, is building up in front of us. And at some point, you know, 2050 is not possible. Right. So I, you know, when's it going to happen? I don't know, but I, from, from our perspective and the little bit that we see is, Tremendous energy and companies trying to figure this out now where a couple of years ago, you know, their sustainability reports were, you know, many of them weren't even doing. And now even in, you know, the oil and gas sector, you're seeing that, uh, no, it's important. The board cares about it. The investors care about it. The company's committed to it and they're looking for ways to actually do it. So I think once we get this measurement out there and recognize that we can actually measure all of these sources – for example we're doing that right now for one of the major you know global oil companies in a, in a refinery and actually bringing in us another technology the digital twin that's actually got you know a measurement of all of the you know product moving through the facility all of those emission sources, all the gas being burned for heaters, all of the heat exchanges, all the steam being used, all the electricity being used at every one of those sources. And we're creating blocks for every emission source every day. Here's the emissions for this source. Cause they're where they're wanting to get to is have a daily carbon intensity of their facility and being able to link that to, you know, to the, to the product. So for every barrel of you know gasoline, we are putting out into the market uh, we know the carbon intensity of that, um, that product, including the embedded emissions and, it's just that discrete work of getting to each of those, you know, those, those data sources. Then the smart contract really knows how to say, okay, it's this type of data. It's this source. It's this, ca- this standard. We make the calculation. Boom. It gets stored just like a financial, you know, accounting transaction. Mm.
1: Yeah. I think that what I heard you saying was it is data driven. We need to find, what those sources are we need to see them and then once we have that information we can start driving towards the net zero goals Absolutely. and it's and that even with once you have the data then you can start looking at what are the quick easy wins yes. and what are the things that are going to be that 5 year timeline and okay, that's exactly. just so great yep well, with that, I want to jump into the final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. So you may have heard them, you may have not, but but they are they're always fun. The first question being, "What is the most important book you've ever read?"
2: <laughs> oh man. Um. Well, I, I'll. Can I ask that in two parts? Absolutely. Um, yeah, one part I think related to what. We're doing here. What educated me the most, or what I continue to try to refer to, and it was, I think, put out about probably five, six years ago. Um, but it's a it's by the, the Greenhouse Gas Management Institute in this in Stockholm Environment Institute or SEI. And they put this paper together, it's about 60 pages, but it really gets into this whole thing of carbon credits and accounting and things like that. And it's called Securing Climate Benefit a guide to using carbon offsets. And so it's been my kind of go-to amongst other things to, to get up to speed and uh, and understand what you and I just talked about today. Um, Most important book ever. I think I I, I like um, history um, and also, you know, historical fiction and things like that, but it's probably five, 10 years ago, maybe more. I read this, uh, the biography of Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow. And uh, I think it came out in 2005 and it was just, um, I'll never forget it. It 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 changed my perspective on the fragility and the, you know, how the United States was formed, uh, you know, the, um, the, I don't know, the, the, the courage, the, the vision, (laughs) but also the, you know, the, the, um, they were, you know, they weren't faultless, right. They had, they were human beings Mm -hmm. and, uh, understanding that. And then, you know, having that vision, that big picture, but also being able to do the detail work behind it to make it happen. Um, just left an impression on me and I've tried to make my kids read it Mm (laughs) and we'll see if I'm ever successful with that. But for me, in terms of, I don't know, Shaping the way I kind of think and, and try to approach things, I thought uh, so that insight into Hamilton's life was um, pretty impactful for me.
1: Yeah. Do you do you enjoy musicals at all?
2: Uh, no, we, my wife and I tend to fall asleep in those. So I, I would love to see it. I think, but uh, if that's what you're asking about Hamilton, the musical, yep. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have yeah. No, we've not seen that unfortunately.
1: Okay. Yeah, because that. That specific biography of Hamilton was the one that that inspired Lin-Manuel Miranda to uh, to write the musical. So, you already know the story. Most people who who have read that would know the story. But it is it is one of those really great history lessons that that show everything you were saying and is incredibly applicable today in yes. understanding the not necessarily just the fragility of of democracy in the u.s but the fragility of all all of humanity and all of society
2: yeah i mean they they took on a i mean a huge challenge and they did it right and so you know this is a big challenge we can do this and um if i could leave one message is that it's yes the big thing is big and complex but it's you know it's just like in baseball or sports it's like you know that discipline day in and day out just keep at it keep at it keep at it and you know before you know it you're 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 there we'll have achieved it so yeah we're a great culture for that and uh, i appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about it something i'm very passionate about
1: yep so the the next question I have is when will we be net zero as a society?
2: Oh, I'm <laughs> I'm overly optimistic always. so um, I mean I, I'm gonna lane to being more optimistic than pessimistic. so I, I, I want to say that we could get to it. And uh, more towards the, you know, the 2040 time frame, if we really, you know, commit to it and kind of do the things that we talked about today, if we continue to stick our head in the sand and not, you know, try to ignore the problem, then I don't even think 2050 is achievable. So mm-hmm. I'll go with my optimistic and I'd like to say, you know, okay, I'll hedge a little bit, you know, 2043.
1: <laughs> All right. 2043 it is. Uh-huh. I'll write it down. And then the last one of these final questions is: Now you give you have the opportunity to ask me a question.
2: Um, what's you know you focus in uh, you know obviously the oil and gas sector. What what's your what can the oil and gas sector do to um, to really? S- be seen as as a leader and, and an honest broker of this energy transition because we've got a lot of inherent technology a lot of inherent talent you know probably some of the best engineering talent in the world and um but I would say outside the sector it's um viewed with suspicion what can we do differently
1: yeah that is a great question i think i I really enjoy all of the different podcasts that are associated with oil and gas and tech because I think this is one of those ways that you really have the opportunity to hear a story and to relate to people. The The things like a 30-second Super Bowl commercial, I really enjoy them from the intellectual standpoint of making you have to think about all of the different things different pieces of your modern life that are coming from the oil and gas world. But ultimately that doesn't necessarily drive you to understand or to relate. It just makes you, it makes you have to think for 30 seconds and then you forget about it when, when the, the teams come back on. So I, I really enjoyed the podcast. I really enjoy the podcast the way that you can see a lot of companies right now going and investing into renewables and into the energy transition i think that is i think it's something that that the oil and gas industry has to do and has to do it without without um i don't know how to say it it it's something that they have to do with a tough skin because there are going to be people and it's going to be coming from from both sides that as you're investing in renewables you're a greenwashing company or you've you've lost your spine because you're you're chasing investors for for their approval but ultimately if the oil and gas industry wants to be a part of a low carbon energy future this is as you point out this is where a significant talent pool is this is where we know how to how to drill deep wells this is where we have all of the engineering to take a a a quote-unquote simple molecule that being a hydrocarbon and turn it into so many aspects of modern life yeah. so it's it is one of those things that if we as the oil and gas industry want to be a part of the low carbon future, we just have to go and do it and do it with a smile and also realize that people are going to be throwing eggs at us the whole time. Yeah. I, and I, I say that in a, in a pessimistic way because I think that that's kind of, it feels like that's going to be what happens because we're going to, I guess we've, we've been treated like the, the bad guy for so long that we just have to accept that we're, we're the good guy and they just don't know it yet. Yep. But we also have to be trying to be the good guy and be smiling and sharing this information and, and sharing the, the truth of, of energy itself. I don't know. That may that may be totally off base and totally wrong and maybe I'm coming at it from a different angle but that's, that's my perspective that we do need to be telling all of the great stories but we also need to just go out there and do it and be willing to deal with whatever backlash yes. we're going to get because ultimately there will be if you're Somebody just said it last week, I think. If you are, if you're not, or what was it? If you're not upsetting somebody, you're probably not doing it right. Yeah. So
2: great insight. Yep. Yeah. Yep.
1: Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say?
2: No, Judge, uh, as I said in the beginning, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I think it's a great podcast, and um, you know, if we get out and touch some people and, and uh, drive some, some change, love it, passionate about it, and I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share our thoughts
1: well mike thank you again and thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the energy transition solutions podcast please do me a favor give me a five-star rating and leave a review doing these two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience if you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry connect with oggn on linkedin or visit oggn.com if you're in the houston area go try out the Canon, mention OGGN, and they will give you a free day pass. Whenever I'm in Houston, I'm at the Canon. And don't forget, it's also where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixers. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon,
0: high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.